Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, just a very quick recap. Uh, we looked at some interesting subjects last week. And one subject which was of interest to me, and I've been thinking about it over the last week, was Paul taking Timothy to circumcise him. And I just wonder what would have happened if Paul had said to the Jews, we're not going to do this, we're going to stand firm on justification by faith. In fact, we're going to die on justification by faith. But Paul capitulated, I think, and he took Timothy and circumcised him. Now, I know why he did it. He did it because the Jews were critical of uh, Timothy's testimony. He was a Jew, but his father was an unsaved Greek. And Paul didn't want the Jews to criticize Timothy for not being circumcised or using that, using that as an excuse not to believe. And we find very clearly back in the Old Testament, Zipporah, the wife of Moses, taking her two sons and circumcising them because the Lord is going to kill them, or he's going to kill Moses to be precise. But the fact is that the Jews had this Abrahamic covenant, and to not be circumcised would make them unclean. But I'm just interested to know what resulted uh, after Timothy was circumcised. And I don't think jury got saved. I personally think it made no difference whatsoever. But Paul would be all things to all that he might win some to Christ. So hold that thought, because I think it's very interesting. On top of that, when we read Galatians, Paul is scathing when it comes to Judaizers, those of the concision, and yet, Acts 16, he takes a grown man and circumcises him. I know why he did it, as I say, to stop the Jews from being critical of Timothy and not to allow them to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But reading the scriptures and understanding those with a particular mindset, I'm of the opinion that nobody got saved as a result of this man's circumcision. We also looked last week at verse 9 when a man appears in a vision to Paul and he says to Paul, come and help us. And I think that man from 16 verse 9 was probably an angel because as a result of this vision, Lydia gets saved, verses 15 and 16. An unclean spirit, which we'll look at this morning, hinders them, Paul and co, of course, from verses 16 and 18. And Paul and Silas end up receiving a public flogging, verses 22 to 23, which we'll probably look at next week. On top of that, the Philippian jailer and his family get saved, verses 30 to 34. But this man, who appeared in a vision, 16.9, to the best of my knowledge, doesn't appear again in Scripture. And I think there's a very quick uh, thought to this before we get into today's message in hand, that this man was an angel, as I say, and I believe that the churches have angels which are assigned to them. On top of that, we know from Revelation 1, 2, and 3 how John writes his epistle to the angel of the church of Sardis, Laodicea, Ephesus, so on and so forth. Not to the pastor. And I know modern Bibles change the word uh, angel to pastor, but I'm a King James Bible believer, and I'm going to stick with the King James, and it says he wrote to the angel. But I haven't got time to further elaborate on that this morning. Also of interest to me last week was Lydia getting saved and not speaking in tongues. Did you notice that? Tongues are found in scripture. Tongues are predominantly relevant to men, never women. So we ended last week in Acts 16 verse 14 in reference to Lydia getting saved and the Lord opened her heart to receive more truth. It's quite possible that she was either a Jew searching for the truth or a proselyte to Judaism. But either way, she's not saved yet. 
And the Lord doesn't bypass her. The apostles don't bypass her. They don't say, well, God's children, do your own thing. No, they are sent to witness to her. They are sent to preach the gospel to her. Look at verse 15, please. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. But it says here, when she was baptized, pretty much straight away. And yet most churches say, come back in six weeks' time, or six months' time, and we will baptize you then. But I believe she was baptized pretty much straight away, as the Philippian jailer will be later on in this chapter. And it speaks about her household, probably in reference to her servants. Now, if this man in verse 9 isn't an angel, if this man in verse 9 is somehow tied in with Lydia, then you would think that Dr. Luke would tell you that he was tied in with Lydia. But I think she was a single woman, a very successful businesswoman. She has servants that work for her, and they get saved as well. Also, it says, 15, she besought us. Now, Dr. Luke has introduced himself into this story, this narrative. He's waited 16 chapters to do so. And I made the case last week that his hometown was probably Troas, verse 8. And we're not told when he got saved or even how he got saved. And I know most church scholars believe that Dr. Luke was a Gentile. I'm not overly sure about that. Uh, you'll read later on that he kept the Passover and he would be worshipping on the Sabbath. It is possible that he was a proselyte to Judaism pre his salvation. But I'm going to stand on my original view that he was quite possibly a Jew. On top of that, he was quite possibly one of the 70. But that's just my own private uh, thought. But this woman has been baptized, verse 15, by total immersion, not sprinkling, along with a household, which is incredible. It's one thing to get somebody saved, it's something else to get an entire household saved. On top of that, you can't get covenant theology from this, you can't get infant baptism from this. You have to be old enough to perceive right from wrong, you have to be old enough to know that you are a sinner in order to be saved. So we are looking at adults believing, the just shall live by faith, and as a result, they're getting baptized pretty much straight away by, by total immersion, I should say. But she says, the latter part of verse 15, if ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, in other words, if you think I'm sincere, or if you think I'm a wonderful person, or a holy person, or a sincere person, or a genuine person, come into my house and abide there. Her property must have been pretty large to accommodate Paul and co. And she's like Martha. Mary and Martha had two great testimonies and their brother also was saved and the Lord Jesus Christ loved them like King David loved Saul and co and some people are critical of King David having this love for Jonathan and they read in the text what's not there and I'll say this as a quick footnote that King David loved Jonathan Saul and also his daughter like the Lord Jesus Christ loved Lazarus Mary and Martha and of course David was brother-in-law to Jonathan. So you've got to be careful with these verses, and you've got to be very wise when it comes to people being critical of the text. But my text this morning from 15, excuse me, from 16, 15, Acts 16, 15, ends with, and she constrained us. She convinced us. We weren't going to argue with her. Look at verse 16, please. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. A few points to make here. The pronoun again is we, 
and I assume Dr. Luke is still including himself here. He's waited 16 chapters to bring himself into the story. But it says how we went to prayer, probably on the Sabbath, because they are Jews. And they're going to witness their brethren to get them saved. When a certain damp soul, a young woman, possessed with a spirit of divination. And this spirit of divination also involves a python, a snake to some extent. And you think of the serpent back in the Garden of Eden. You think of those people in India who get the old flute and start blowing it. And the python pretty much dances to the tune of the flute. But it says a certain damsel, a certain young lady possessed with a spirit of divination, met us. She's demon possessed, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. She was very lucrative. Like clairvoyants, like mediums, are very lucrative. The same followed Paul and us and cried saying, look at this. These men are the servants of the Most High God. That's very Old Testament, which shown to us the way of salvation. Keeps in mind that she has been indwelt by an unclean spirit. And these unclean spirits have been around for a long time. You might think you're pretty strong in the faith. You might think you're pretty sanctified and holy. But I'll tell you something, David fell and uh, Noah fell and Solomon fell. And uh, you can be sure that the devil was behind their fall. And if he could get those men to fall, he'll get you to fall. He'll have no trouble with you whatsoever. In fact, that scripture from the New Testament when the Lord said... Satan comes and he has nothing on me. And one late scholar who's now with the Lord said, uh, yes, that's true. The devil had nothing on the Lord, but he's got plenty on us. And that's very true. But this woman has been filled with an unclean spirit. She's making a lot of money for her leaders or her masters from 16. But she says, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. She speaks the truth. She doesn't lie. Because the spirits have to speak the truth. The spirits know that Paul and co. were servants of the Most High God. And you find that back in the Gospels, when the Lord came across demon-possessed people, they too would say the same thing. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? Never once do they question his deity. It's only the devil that does that in Matthew chapter 4. When he says to the Lord, if you be the Son of God, uh, cast yourself down from here and uh, trust in yourself, so on and so forth. And the Lord says, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, you not tempt the Lord thy God. That's a great scripture, by the way, to show the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, this woman is filled with an unclean spirit, and yet the unclean spirit speaks the truth. Which is interesting, because you would think that the unclean spirit would lie, but that's not the case. Look at verse 18, please. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. She did this many days. Why did Paul put up with this for so long? It's fascinating, isn't it? And this she did many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, now watch this, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. The spirit is masculine. But he speaks to the woman, and he's speaking to the spirit inside of the woman. And some people say, well, James, you know, you do a lot of street work. And sometimes people come up to you and cause you problems. And that's true. Yesterday we had an incident in our town. A busker came over to Patrick as he was preaching and was very ferocious, very uh, angry with him. And he wanted him to cease from preaching. And some people say, well, why didn't you cast out the spirit, James? Well, ask yourself this. If you think you can cast out a spirit of an unclean person, maybe you should start with yourself. 
I don't mean casting out a spirit of yourself. I mean make sure your house is in order. Because some people say that the gifts of the spirit are still for today, which, if that were the case, would be wonderful. And yet such people rarely, if ever, go to the local hospitals and lay hands on sick children or raise children from the dead. Children dying of leukemia or suffering from diabetes or people who are blind, people who are really sick. You don't find these people going into hospitals and clearing out wards. And yet they think that they can heal unclean spirits or set people free of unclean spirits. On top of that, we had a church in our town yesterday doing their once in a blue moon outreach. And it's not really an outreach. They have this big placard which says healing. And I watched these people over the years. There's about three or four of them, sometimes more. And they're charismatic. They're from a local Pentecostal church. And they offer the gift of healing. And they say, we can heal you if you come to be healed. And I often think to myself, what would happen if somebody went forward to be healed? Let's say somebody had an unclean spirit. Or somebody was blind or deaf or crippled. What would happen if those people went to be healed and were not healed? Could they sue that church? Because in the UK we have a Trade Description Act. And the Trade Description Act says if you offer a service and don't fulfil it, you can be sued. And I watched this church yesterday, and I've watched them over the years, and really they're just giving out tea and coffee, biscuits. They'll lay hands on you if you're having a hard time to somehow uh, take the anxiety from you. But here, Paul, being grieved as an apostle, has the authority. And that's important. He has the authority to do what he's about to do. And you might think you have the authority. You might think you can lay hands on people and cast out the spirit. Well, have a go. See what happens. But ask yourself this, if the Spirit doesn't come out straight away, then it's quite obvious you don't have the authority. Because when the Lord took matters into his own hands, when the apostles took matters into their own hands, they had the Holy Spirit's anointing to do so. But I'm more interested in the fact that Paul has waited many days. He's put up with this woman, this young lady, filled with an unclean spirit. He's waited for several days until he eventually comes the end of himself, he can't take any more, it says he was grieved. And I think of that text back in John 11, when the Lord went up to resurrect Lazarus, and they're grieving over him, in fact they're mourning over him. They are weeping and wailing like unsaved people, and it says he, it says he was grieved. He was grieved internally, and here Paul is grieved, he's grieved by this woman who's causing quite a commotion, and he turns and says to the spirit, not the girl, He turns and says to the spirit, which is masculine, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. There is power in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can be very careful because later on you'll read of some Jewish people who take it upon themselves to cast out uh, an unclean spirit. And it says, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? And this unclean spirit turns on this Jewish exorcist and co and they flee greatly wounded but the great part from 18 says and he came out the same hour we're not told what happened to this young lady after she was set free and sometimes people don't want to be set free from unclean spirits have you ever thought about that christians say you know let's cast out spirits less to this less to that but sometimes people don't want to be set free from unclean spirits i mean look at hollywood they are filled with singers and artists producers and directors and they make a great living, they're very successful, and they are indwelt by unclean spirits. And if you were to say to some of those artists, can I lay hands on you to cast out the spirit? They'd say, no way. You know, I've sold my soul to the devil. I can't imagine being able to function and being as successful as I am without the devil. So here Paul took it upon himself to cast out the spirits. And just ask yourself this question, what did the young lady make of this? 
She wasn't expecting to be delivered, and yet she got delivered. Look at 19. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers, and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. Where's Dr. Luke gone? Where's Timothy gone? I'm sometimes puzzled by what we don't read in scripture, not what we do read. Paul and Silas are detained, 19. They are brought before the magistrates, a very modern term to describe authority. We use it today, the magistrates, so on and so forth. Saying, these men being Jews, no doubt about the nationality, do exceedingly trouble our city. That's what an evangelist should do, by the way. You should trouble your city. When we street preach now town, many times you get a lot of hostility. Like yesterday, this butter coming over and he said to Patrick, I'll flatten you. I'll drown you out. I've got a very loud PA system. And he did. And it got quite, uh, you know, quite hairy for a few moments. This is a pretty tall chap, maybe about six foot one, six foot two. And he was sort of standing over Patrick. And I was thinking to myself, which way is this going to go? But nothing came of it as far as physical violence is concerned. But this is the point I'm trying to make. If you street preach in your town, if you are busy in your town or your community, you should cause great trouble. And yet, if you rub along with your town, day in, day out, something's wrong. Look at D.R. Moody. Look at uh, Gypsy Smith or some of the greats like Mordecai Ham. When those guys went into a town, they turned upside down. Almost caused a riot. I mean, look at John Wesley. He went to Wigan, a town not far from here, back in the, let's see now, the 18th century. And he was such a formidable, formidable preacher, such a formidable preacher that people went out to kill him. He was tied to the back of a horse and dragged on the streets of Wigan. He was bleeding, but he rejoiced in that. And here, it says here from verse 20, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive. That's not technically true. They weren't preaching anything. They were just going from A to B, worshipping on the Sabbath. They just baptised Lydia and her household when this unclean spirit locks on them. You see, every town and city has an unclean spirit, I think anyway. And I've preached all over the northwest of England for the last 10 years or so, and I've come up against a lot of hostility. In fact, I'll say this as a quick additional thought, that we've had a lot of issues with, with buskers over the years, interestingly enough. We did an outreach uh, last year in the south of England, and we had two buskers on two different occasions that wanted to almost get into a fight with us. And yesterday was no exception. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you read that one of Cain's descendants was a musician. Also, you read from Ezekiel 28 how Satan... Uh, was built with an organ inside of him. He would worship the Lord. He would produce music for the Lord. And he fell. And now Hollywood is very much in his grip. And yet David was a musician. And he worshipped the Lord. He wrote many psalms and many great pieces of poetry to worship the Lord. So music can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. But as I say, you've got unsaved people very much coming up against you. You've got unclean spirits very much in your towns and cities. And if you don't believe me, just street preach. Just get in the soapbox if you're, if you're a man, if you're a brother in the Lord. I don't think women should do it. But if you are a brother, get on a soapbox and preach hellfire. Do it once a week in your own town. Be brave. Go into your own town once a week and get on a soapbox and preach hellfire. And I put this out as a challenge to pastors as well. Even uh, Charles Spurgeon said that if you were a pastor and you never went out of your own four walls, you were doing a disservice. And he was pretty scathing 
of his fellow pastors in the 19th century who wouldn't straight preach. You see, it's very easy to sit in your own church or your own fellowship and speak to one another. You're preaching to the choir, but you go out to the streets and you preach hellfire. You get in a soapbox, you raise your voice, you get in people's faces. You'll see how the, uh, how the wind blows then. But it says how these men teach customs, 21, which are not lawful for us to receive. Not true, but what do you expect from unsaved people? Neither to observe being Romans. But ask yourself this, where has Dr. Luke gone? Starts off, we went here, we went there, we did this, we did that. And yet, when the trouble begins, when uh, altercations start to commence, Dr. Luke and Timothy are nowhere to be found. I won't read into the text what's not there. I'm not going to slander them. I'm just simply bringing to your attention the fact that it's almost like they are outside of the equation, not on the scene. Make of that what you will. 22. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates went off their clothes and commanded to beat them. It's pretty humiliating. They're going to get a public flogging. And we see this on the news every day, and we see it online every day in Islamic countries. We hear of Christians being crucified. We hear of men and women having their heads cut off. We hear of all sorts of wickedness. And sometimes the opinion is that these Muslims are simply upholding Sharia law, and they certainly are, and they are simply dealing with sin and unrighteousness. And maybe they are, I don't know. But from experience, a lot of these people are hypocrites. But it says here how they rent off their clothes, they rip their clothes off, and commanded to beat them. And of course, Paul would rejoice in the fact that he would be suffering for his Lord. In fact, every apostle, apart from John, would die for their Lord. And it's good to suffer for the Lord. It's good to be slandered for the Lord. And sometimes, if you, if you are a street preacher, you're going to have to put up a lot of verbal abuse, and sometimes physical abuse. I was doing some outreach last week in Manchester, and a drunk came over to me, and he said to me, can I have some money? And I said, yes, come back in half an hour. I wasn't ready yet to pack up. And this is the thing when you do street work, you've got to take control, meaning that if you're not careful, people will come with problem after problem and take you away from the work. And I said to this man very calmly, come back in half an hour, and I'll buy you some food. And he uttered some four-letter word under his breath and walked away. He then turned around and came back to me. And he saw that I had a camera on my chest. And he said to me, is that a camera? And he started to fiddle with my camera, which is my property. And I said, don't touch my camera. You know, it's, a, it's an expensive piece of kit. And he punched me in the stomach. He punched me in the stomach and he turned around and walked away, cursing me. And sometimes you have to put up with that. Now, I didn't retaliate. I could have chased him down. You know, I'm bigger than he is. I could have flattened him. But I didn't do that because I'm a Christian. And I'm also holding a sign in my city. It would have looked awful had I turned around and flattened this man. But my old nature would have done that. My old nature would have, you know, really beaten him. But here, they're going to be beaten. They're going to have their clothes ripped off them. And this is the point I'm trying to make. That if you are faithful to the Lord, you will have to endure hardship physical and verbal look at 23 please and when they had laid many stripes upon them they cast them into prison charging a jailer to keep them safely who having received such a charge thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks even houdini couldn't escape from this detention and yet this incarceration 
This public flogging is going to result in someone else being saved. The Philippian jailer and his family. Go back to verse 9. Come over Paul, help us. Who is this man? Who is this man calling on the Apostle Paul to come and help him? We're never told. And yet Lydia gets saved. A young girl is set free from an unclean spirit. Paul and Silas are publicly beaten, humiliated, and yet rejoicing. And on top of that, they've now been handed over to a jailer, 23, who has thrust them into the inner prison, the prison house, or the big house, as used to call it back in the day. They're now very much in the big house, public population, or general population, I think they call it. And their feet are fast in the stocks. They're not going anywhere. They are detained, and what you'll read next time is the Holy Spirit very much getting involved in their incarceration. You saw that back in Acts chapter 10 in reference to Peter being set free, and you'll read about this next time in reference to Paul and Silas being set free. But there'll be another account later in the book of Acts where Paul is not set free. And this goes into the whole subject of the gifts of the Spirit. Are they still relevant for today? Well, clearly up until this piece of scripture, Acts 16, they are very much relevant. You've got Paul laying hands on a young lady, casting out the spirits of her, and there's no failures. And yet you were told, were you not, that if you set somebody free from an unclean spirit, they better get saved straight away. Otherwise, seven more spirits come along, which were far worse than the previous spirit, and take up their abode. But we're not told if that young lady got saved or not. And I'm thinking that if we're not told, then she wasn't saved. I don't want to argue from silence and suggest she was saved. And we're not told. But here, this jailer has, given, has been given a charge. And he thrusts them, he throws them into the inner prison. They're not going to go anywhere, as I say. Even Houdini couldn't escape this one. And yet, what's going to come from this is a great miracle. And this goes to Romans 8.28. How all things work together for good to those who love God to those which are the called according to his purpose. We can't understand that. We all go through awful trials and tribulations, and we think the Lord has abandoned us. We think there's no hope. We think it's very grim, and we think that we are washed up, forsaken, and yet he is in there. He is in there in ways that we cannot perceive. And here, he is very much behind this incarceration. In fact, if you were to speak to a Calvinist, he would say to you that the Lord ordained this before the foundation of the world. And he would say to you that the Lord has deliberately caused this group of people, 21, 22, 23, to detain them, to beat them publicly, and then to throw them into jail. And that's partly true. The Lord is all sovereign, and whatever comes our way comes our way because he has ordained it to be so. But I'm not overly sure that we can say this was preordained before the foundation of the world. Did the Lord know this would happen before the world began? Of course he knew it would happen for the foundation of the world. But to ordain something, to make something happen, is another subject altogether. But I'm out of time for today, so I'll close it there in Acts 16.24, and next week we'll pick it up in Acts 16.25.